Hi, welcome to the Arrangement Podcast. Today we're here with John Reese, author of Getting Off, out now from Instar Books. You can pick up a copy at instarbooks.com. John's been a contributor to Tablet, Complex, New York Observer, The Source, Interview, and many others. He'll be reading at the Franklin Park Reading Series on December 11th. John, welcome to the Arrangement Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first of all, I wanted to tell you how immersed I was in the world of Getting Off while I read it. It's one of the most breathtakingly raw and fresh novels I've ever read, and it's as horrifying as it is redemptive. Edgar Allan Poe said in The Philosophy of Composition that the definition of a short story is that you should be able to read it in one sitting. I read the whole thing overnight in a hotel room in Hanoi on a trip to Vietnam, and it was literally a one-sitting read, which makes it the longest short story I've ever read. Congratulations on writing an incredible book. Thank I mean, look, I, you know, I, I really mean, mean it when I say that. That means a great deal to me. I, for me, I've known a lot of authors that actually wouldn't take that as a compliment, and I get why they would feel that way, but for me, it's, it's possibly the highest compliment. It's what I wanted for this book because it's, it's really the type of experience reading a novel that, that inspired me to want to write a book myself. The books that I had that type of experience, so, you know, one, two sitting book that really immersed me the way only you know tv or video games had in the past that like you know that's what made me really want to try writing it's why i loved punk it, it you know it's it was it was music that made me feel like i could try to do it like i could be part of it and uh you know it's it's it was authors like um you know like arthur Nersessian or um i don't you know more recently joshua moore even before that bukowski you know those writers that just make you make you want to do that and uh so that means a great deal to me and uh yeah anybody who felt any of the adjectives that you <laughs> named off earlier i mean that's that's what i'm going for so i really appreciate it i mean absolutely man it, it really was a striking piece of fiction when i when i read it and i mean it, it reminded me of you know some of the authors you mentioned i mean People like William S. Burroughs, too. It's, it seemed like a, it was like a more accessible, actually contemporary version of Burroughs that you could relate to. Mm. Where Bur- and, and not written by, like, in some ways, a garbage human being. You know what I mean? Bur- Burroughs is someone who's fascinated me for a long time. But just having someone who is sincere in doing what they're doing and, and really trying to communicate instead of just sort of being obscurantist and bizarre in ways. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I love some of Burroughs' work, but... It, it, it struck me as it struck me as sort of that you know like more like a junkie than naked lunch right right well I mean Burroughs was like an anthropologist right I mean that after junkie that even somewhat in junkie that's how he approached I think a lot of his writing was like you know it was detached and uh, you know junkie I think maybe there was an innocence to his writing that didn't that hadn't sort of bled in the way it would in naked lunch and, and you know the novels that came after that but yeah, I think that that is what is missing from a lot of dope, fi- you know, or drug fiction is people feel like they have to approach it with this level of detachment. And uh, I'm not sure where that comes from necessarily. But, you know, I, I'm one thing that I heard when this novel was being shopped around was, oh, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen junkie fiction before. And uh it's not that though. It's something very different. That's what I, that's what I was really trying to get at is that it, it feels very different than other books that have been written about drugs. Whether those are drug memoirs, whether that's drug fiction, there there's an urgency to it in a way that I, I feel like there's not in other in other fiction that I've read. Well, for me, it was like you know, look, heroin. Just getting right down to it, heroin makes you it gives you the ability 
to shut off all that, you know, all the the gooey stuff inside you that you would would like to ignore. And then when you stop doing it, that stuff just envelops you in in every possible way. And to to write about that experience without having that vulnerability and that you know deep emotional charge i i guess i i understand why it's effective and why so many people do it but i don't understand why people don't do the opposite i guess i don't understand why there wasn't a novel you know look even jesus's son even you know all of these heralded books about drugs there is this detachment and i don't really understand why that's that's the trend so when people said we you know we've seen junkie fiction before at the time i wasn't quite sure how to explain why my book was different but it was really miracle jones that uh you know sort of pointed me in that illuminated that that difference i mean and it's not like there are no books that are really emotionally charged that are about heroin addiction but they're Certainly not a lot of them. There's very few. Right. I mean, it, it's interesting going back to what you were saying about sort of heroin as escapism, that it takes away the pain that people feel. I mean, you, you said in an interview that heroin can replace anything that you want it to replace, even a mother's hug, <laughs> which I thought was crazy to hear that because I, I, mean, I feel like that is, I mean, that's the reason that people gravitate towards, you know, towards drug use as escapism is because, you know, there's pain in their life that they don't know how to cope with. I mean, why do you think that heroin is so good at replacing these things? Is it purely chemical or is there something more to it? I mean, I could think and talk about this for, for you know, a week straight. But <laughs> I, the first time someone asked me what heroin felt like, my the way I explained it was that it felt to me like, and I, and I had this very specific memory when I, uh, when I described this, but it felt to me like, so I showered every day before school, and that's something that started when I was, you know, very, very young. I I would wake up, and it was always, it'd always be a little cold in my house, and I would hop in the shower. I'd take this really hot shower, and then I would hop back in my bed, completely naked and wet, for a few for a few minutes, and I would just like let the covers soak up some of the water, and it would be so warm, and it would be like I was suddenly back in my sleep, but somewhat conscious, and it was this feeling that I equate with just absolute pure euphoria to me that's what heroin feels like but like you know in a in a way that's like a switch bam give me that give it to me hard and so i guess why it has the ability to replace anything is just we're not that complicated there were there you know the, the i heard recently the most recent uh wisdom scientific wisdom on emotions has shown that there's only like four human emotions. There's like pleasantness, unpleasantness, arousal, and something. I forgot what the fourth one is, but the the sort of the reason why we think there's this great tapestry of emotions it has a lot more to do with concepts in our brain that we associate those four with, you know. So I think when it comes down to it, we're really just pleasantness for us is you know breaks down to these few chemicals it's dopamine it's serotonin and you know heroin just gives you that i, I mean it, it'll just you're hitting it, those pleasure centers in your brain and it's just and, and when when you can hit a button and do that instead of having to go through the work that most people have to do of 
of experiencing pleasure in their life, right? Whether that's, you know, a, a long creative project where they feel that rush of serotonin. When you can press a button and get it, it's a much different situation. I mean, I've always, I've always been very obsessed with trying to, to regulate those things. It's always been it, ever since I was a little kid. And uh, the, I think about when I, you know, I was an actor in high school and um, I would go on these auditions. I would leave, I would leave school a little early and I, I'd take the train into the city and I'd go on these auditions. You know, mostly they were commercial auditions or they were a television show. And my job would be to go in there. I'd sit in a chair. I'd wait for a while and Finally, I'd be called in and I'd be asked to read at least maybe a word or two and at most a page. And really, whether I was going to get a job or not had little or nothing to do with how well I read. But it, it had the most to do with just the vibe they got from me, right? And it was something that as much as I tried to control it, it was entirely out of my control. The, the, the jobs, that the biggest jobs I booked, one of them, I think... I had been up all night partying the night before. I got in there, fell asleep in the waiting room, woke up when they called my name, walked in there and like wearily read a line and got paid $20,000 to shoot a commercial a week later. <laughs> you know, uh, but I was obsessed in the days leading up to those auditions, trying to control every little aspect of my existence from like if my mother spoke to me the wrong way that morning or if somebody yelled at me or I got a bad grade it was always oh no this is going to ruin my audition my life is over this is terrible and it's just like this I've always had this obsessive need to try to control those things and if I and I always felt that if I could just be able just be able to access that mainframe then none of those things would matter i could live my life without that fear of those things happening and 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 frankly you know when you live without that fear those things don't t those tend not to happen as much you know uh so i guess i always felt and look a lot of a lot of junkies will tell you they feel like they were born different, you know, much like a like somebody who has type one diabetes needs penicillin. Uh, not sorry, not penicillin. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What do you What do you um? What is the sugar stuff? Uh, <laughs> insulin. <laughs> we 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 both needed assist on that uh, from uh, from John's girlfriend Sarah, who's listening in the other room. That was very helpful. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Insulin. I was trying to think of it too. We were just like, uh, we, we were both like cringing. I should have known because a close friend of mine uh, actually is a nutri is a nutritionist for I, I think you know all kinds of people, but specifically people with diabetes for a living. So I really should have known that. So I'm sorry, Mel. Uh, what we'll it in post. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, a lot of junkie or like former addicts will tell you that they have they believe that they have some kind of deficiency that they have less dopamine production than your average person. I don't know how true that is. It yeah, I wonder true. if there have been any studies into that because that's actually an interesting topic. I would love, to, yeah, I would love to see if, you know, find out if there have been studies on that or, you know, I would love there to be studies on that because, I mean, I guess I've always, yeah, at, at moments felt that that way about my myself too, you know. I mean, obviously, though, if we did any kind of studies of illegal drugs, that would be the worst thing we could possibly do, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like we're opening up to that more and more. I was just, Thankfully, I just yeah. heard somebody talking about getting a, 
ketamine, uh, like intravenous ketamine in a doctor's office. I, as I, a, I heard that as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is like, yeah. Someone, someone told the story about, <laughs> about it being prescribed for like, you know, for, for psychological issues and to, to get an IV for that. It's like, <laughs> that's, that's fucking mind blowing to me because I, uh, you know, I used to do special K in school. That was like my thing. I loved doing it in high school because for some reason, it just like, it, it was a drug that you could do very co- covertly but feel very fucked up. Like, you would feel as if it was crazy that nobody knew that you were very high, but it wouldn't necessarily show on the outside. So the idea that it has any redeeming value for, for treatment is, is I, I guess I'm skeptical, but maybe, yeah. you never know. Right, but, yeah, but the thing is that we, we can't know unless, unless there's actually funding for these kind of studies. Of or course. unless, even if there's not funding for it, but if, if the, you know, if the actual professors are about to do the studies and conduct them, right? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the big thing that they're doing that really fascinates me is there's Ibogaine, uh, which... I was actually going to ask you about that. It's interesting you brought it up. Right. Yeah, Ibogaine. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, Ibogaine is, uh, for those who don't know, is a drug that some... Uh, I want to say... It's not Peru. The indigenous people of... Maybe it's it is... Central or South America. Yeah. Right, uh, but you know it's common for tribes in that area they, to give it to young men when they come of age. It's almost like a bar mitzvah, uh, and they go. You know they have a very intense hallucinogenic experience that is often described as not fun. Uh, but they apparently there's something about that hallucinogenic experience that makes them have to grapple with the idea of becoming an adult and what it means to be an adult especially with regard to how you interact with your community and society and um you know it's like it's a rite of it's a rite of passage ritual and they uh yeah i mean so so that's how how it has been used for a long time and apparently there was some guy who was a junkie who was dope sick and happened upon this drug, took it, had this hallucinogenic experience, and not only felt different from a psychological standpoint, but also wasn't dope sick anymore. So for people, not everyone actually knows this. Heroin and most opiates make you, they're unlike most other drugs because they make you physically sick when you try to stop doing them a lot of people talk about withdrawals with regard to any you know any drug but with heroin it's a it is an undeniably physical reaction that is extremely intense i mean you know we, we were talking not to get too off track but we were talking about you know the button before right the the control frame the thing that people don't understand about heroin withdrawals because it, it people describe it as being like a f- bad flu and it is but what people don't understand and can't understand unless they've experienced it is what's so bad about it and what makes people write about it and never forget the experience is that all you, the wherewithal that your brain has to defend you from pain and from fear and from all those feelings that fall under that umbrella of unpleasantness all those defenses are down they are completely you are barren of any sort of shield from that kind of pain so like the fuck the abject fear and anxiety and 
it is something like you will never experience again. I mean, just think about the worst depression you've ever had, uh, just cranked up to the to you know the the highest possible volume. That's what you're experiencing while this you know extreme flu is happening, and the combination of those things is you know it make all you can think of is like the kind of pain that you hear about when so and so has to like saw off their arm to survive like it's that kind of pain it, but and it doesn't stop um why was i oh yeah so ibogaine so apparently this so a guy discovers ibogaine he's a junkie he's about to get sick he takes it he has this hallucinogenic experience and when he comes out of it not only does he psychologically feel different about the drug but he's not sick and that is incredible because there are a lot of things people have done just to deal with that specific issue of feeling uh, of the sickness and how to curb it or control it and that science isn't exact there are no drugs that control it perfectly and the ones that they do have have a lot of undesirable side effects Somehow this guy takes this drug, has this experience, and is just not dope sick. And the science behind why they're still working out, but it has something to do with fat cells. That's all I really understand. But, so you know, now in the years, and this was probably the late 60s, early 70s that this happened. So this is not new, but it is new that, you know, people are starting to invest real time in money and resources into studying how it works and clinics have popped up all over the world everywhere but the united states to treat people and this the success rate it's not perfect I mean, it doesn't this is not a cure for heroin addiction that does not exist it probably won't ever exist uh well i don't actually I, sh I shouldn't say that it might exist someday but um but it has, from what I understand, anywhere between like a 30 and 60% success rate compared to the general success rate of, of uh, opiate addicts getting clean, which is, from my understanding, anywhere between 3 and 5%. That's incredible. And so one of the things that they're doing is they're... The problem is uh, they cannot monetize a drug that has this this intense hallucinogenic experience attached to it so what they're right right and you know uh the same, same with ayahuasca right which pe some people have said has cured them of right. so addiction the, or alcoholism right these like really intense and unpleasant hallucinogenic experiences that can sometimes reveal to people right the the, the darkness at the center that's causing all of their problems in life i feel like that's kind of one of the you know or you know, and and the pain that addiction causes to people around them, I and mean, that that's what I've heard about people's ibogaine and ayahuasca experiences. Oftentimes, when they're when they're getting clean, right, is that that having that kind of an experience kind of shows them the pain that they cause to themselves and those around them through their addiction. Right. So I mean, ayahuasca is a whole other subject, is a, and its relation to addiction is a whole other thing, uh, which is really interesting. Um, the ibogaine so with the ibogaine though they're, what they're trying to do is you know see if they can separate the hallucinogenic experience from the anti-withdrawal uh experience wow i didn't know that yeah uh it, there's a drug called i think it's m18 is the drug that they're working on what they're doing is they're testing it with rats and you know the tests with rats have been incredible i mean they're finding you know they essentially give a rat a lever and he can 
hit it as many as much as he wants and he gets morphine injections and then they give them the drug and it just chooses not to hit this lever which That's is incredible, incredible. it's wow. it's amazing um but i i don't know you know how much the question is how much the hallucinogenic experience plays into the you know the the addict's ability to stop and you know this speaks to what people say about ayahuasca which is i i'm i am deeply fascinated by dmt and ayahuasca Same here. uh you know it because it seems it it bleeds into every other interest that i have right like uh i mean, I mean if you're not to be a dick but like if you're into weird cool shit like ayahuasca should bleed into every interest you have whether it's like <laughs> the existence of life on other planets whether it's the possibility of other dimensions whether it's you know whether there's some sort of divine plan or connectedness first of all the idea the fact that so many living things produce this chemical is incredible um really? it, it bleeds into religion there's a lot of people who uh, apparently i think it's the akasha tree or something like that has a it is really common in the area that a lot of the Bible, the stories in the Bible took place, and a lot of people believe that the burning bush was this tree, and that you know, standing near it, there's a good chance that uh, Moses inhaled a bunch of the smoke, and he was having a uh, DMT experience, and that's what that whole story is. Is Mo Moses? Yeah, Moses. Yeah. Um, the I think a lot of people describe. I, I've heard this said about you know a lot of uh, hallucinogenic drugs particularly mushrooms um and apparently mushrooms and dmt have a bunch of related uh properties but a lot of people say that you're you know like you're playing a video game and uh you know you you want spacebar to be jump instead of shift uh you get to remap the controls and the settings like that a lot of people say that that's sort of comparable to what mushrooms and dmt and ayahuasca can do that they can make you just completely reassociate you know we were talking about concepts before i think i think that's a lot of what it is it's you know concepts are formed in our brains as a result of past experiences your brain has so much going on at any given moment and you know if we if it's true that we only have these few emotions the way that we react to things in our bodies, the way our brain tells our body to react to things has the most to do with our past experiences. So if it's, you know, oh no, I'm having these withdrawals again, how am I gonna react? Fear and pain, that's that's what that's what I do usually. Like that's that's our concept. Uh, so people say that 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 mushrooms and DMT give you the ability to remap those thoughts and those associations and the big thing with ayahuasca that people say is that it makes you see yourself the way you fit into the greater community that you live in it makes you see how you are connected to the society and the community that you're a part of so you know whether you're a bad husband father um mentor lover you know these things that you have to look at these things and um you don't really get many chances to do that in this life so i think that that's probably a pretty profound experience for the people it happens to 
absolutely. When you're talking about sort of <clears throat> connecting this with the Godhead, right? Right. Or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, finding your place in the universe as a whole, right? I mean, these are, these are enormous concepts. And I think that's why most people go in search of psychedelics in the first place, right? They, they have, you know, they have a need to feel that interconnectedness, that sort of, uh, that, that, you know, finding that oversoul, for lack of a better word. Right. So then there's this whole idea that it's it's some kind of divine plan. So I uh, when I when I worked at Complex, I interviewed this guy Dimitri Muganis, who was one of the early advocates for ibogaine. He was uh, he was apparently like buddies with Herbert Hunky, who uh, was like a beat poet writer who apparently got burrows into heroin. I mean, he was just like an early New York City literary heroin addict hustler. But he was friends with this guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But he was friends with this guy, Dimitri, uh, who was a junkie his whole life, found Ibogaine, did it, got clean, remained clean for the rest of his life, and then started to give it to people who had no other options for treatment or didn't have any money and he would you know bring people to hotel rooms sort of and an alternative i mean like an alternative because they couldn't afford exactly yeah but he all you know but also because he felt like he had something that nobody else was using right this and it, or, could be the cure exactly right. yeah <laughs> and so he would take people to hotel rooms and you know it's a lot it's like a you know two day at least experience so he would take people and he would treat them and look after them but he would also have to say look if you something goes wrong and you die i have to leave you because he was taking his life into his own hands because he he it was seriously illegal what he was doing and um and nonetheless you know selfless as fuck but he was you know he would continue to do it eventually went to portland to help somebody who was begging i think portland who was begging him for treatment and it was a dea thing and so he doesn't do it anymore um but he was telling me, I think, with regard to ayahuasca, that he feels, and a lot of shamans feel, that the point of ayahuasca is that is that it's that it's essentially like um, it's like divine, it's like a divine advocate for better treatment of our planet. That you know, the wow. West, <laughs> yeah, that so so that the West is destroying the planet. And they're destroying the rainforest, and they are now destroying themselves uh, spiritually. Whether you know, and addiction is one of one of the most uh, effective ways that they're doing that. And it's you know, it's it's not just people, it's not just artists, and it's not just lower income people anymore. It's it's uh, upper class white kids and adults that are doing it. And he believes that things like ibogaine and ayahuasca are the cures for these things and that the reason why it's coming to to the surface now is because there's this dire need to stop what the west is doing in the rest of the world and when shamans come over here and they give these rituals that part of the message that 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 these people are given is you need to change the way you look at the world and you need to change the way you are you know you need to stop sort of pillaging the nature and and the rainforest and uh you know these indigenous communities and you need to get closer to the earth and 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 the plants and medicines that are available and he really believes that this is that it's like a, it's a system that has been put into play that is intended to save the planet. In that sense. is fascinating. Yeah, seriously, it is. 
I mean, how do, how do you feel like, I mean, how do you feel like pharmaceutical treatments for addiction differ from these alternatives? I mean, because we've talked about the alternatives a lot already, but I mean, do you, I mean, have you heard of anything out there from a sort of prescription point of view or pharmaceutical point of view that obviously it doesn't cure addiction, but, but helps people with it or... Well, I mean, so that is a big aspect of my book. Uh, right, because, I mean, one of the most terrifying parts of the book for me was the section that talked about how bad things get when addicts try to get help, right? right. I mean, God, the, the horrifying scene, I mean, without giving too much away, I mean, in, in the hospital, uh, you know, we're in the, the, the mock hospital, sort of. I mean, I mean, people think addicts should just go to rehab, but the constant difficulty of getting into those programs you know, makes it one of the hardest things to do. And then along with that, I mean, once you're there, like like we saw in the book, doesn't mean all your problems are solved, right? Right, right, uh, right. I mean, uh, yeah. Look, I said that that the success with opiate addicts is something like five percent. I pull that number out of my ass to some extent, but it's it's certainly not. Uh, it's not much of an overstatement. It, it is extremely low, but it differs depending on how you approach it. And one of the more uh, effective ways that approaches that people take is what's called replacement therapy and essentially because the success rate in cold turkey getting clean is is extremely low i mean it might it might work for some period of time but you're just you see eventual relapse again and again so there are all different kinds of replacement therapy um one of them the most common and the one that's been around for the longest is methadone uh which is Effective. I mean, it's extremely effective, but it, it has a lot of hitches. First of all, it has a lot of side effects, depending on the person, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, it has some terrible side effects like constant sweating, bloating. Uh, the biggest problem is it, it gives you the ability to just continue to, to use heroin if you want. And uh, usually people just find other drugs that you know they'll, they'll find cocaine and they'll find xanax and they'll mix and that just becomes their new heroin and you know the methadone clinics foster these communities that like linger outside and 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 plot now look i feel weird saying this because the truth is methadone saves a lot of lives and it is the best option for a lot of people and i also believe in general that replacement therapy is the best option for most people um and there's another drug called um, buprenorphine, which is newer. It's actually been around for a long time in Europe, but it's 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 newer in the U.S. And I was an early buprenorphine user in the U.S. Um, and what it is, it, it's uh, it's another lesser opiate like methadone, uh, another synthetic opiate, uh, but it's it's very small doses, and it's coupled with naloxone, which is another name for Narcan, which is when uh, an addict overdoses, it's what they give them to come out of it. And you hear horror stories about Narcan, because essentially what Narcan is, is it's the opposite of heroin. So you hear about people like, you know, they, they fall out and then they wake up and a lot of people don't know that that uh, heroin like helps you, first of all, constipates people, but like, you know, people will wake up pissing and shitting themselves and crying and vomiting all at once because like you're just flicking this switch that like 
makes every yeah so yeah it's it's pretty terrible but <laughs> buprenorphine it, it has these trace amounts of, of narcan and what it does is it makes it so that uh it blocks your opiate receptor so that you can continue to use heroin and um the problem is you have to be very careful with when you give someone narcan in relation to their last dose of heroin because if there's a trace of heroin still in their system you will send them into that experience and even though it's quote-unquote legal here in the united states it's another gray area i don't quite understand it but it's another gray area where they are giving it to people in like office buildings and they don't know exact there is no exact science the one to give it to people so you know you have these these things happen uh where people go into these terrible withdrawals that are probably life-threatening and they're doing it in like a you know a fucking rehearsal space for 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 a new metal band or something like it's <laughs> i mean i i can only speak to my experience and I, I won't say what hospital it was but i you know the, there are there's certainly a lot of stories in this book that are based on some sort of life experience and i know that when i first got on it it was uh it was a hospital that was due it was like subway ads you know do you want to be part of this this uh you know, are you addicted to so-and-so do you want a free program at so-and-so hospital and it ended up not being in the hospital but like some building across the street that was some office regular office building and uh you know they they like did all these things that they said made it certain that they wouldn't give me my dose too early and they did and they I ended up just like going to these terrible withdrawals in this this building and like I was when you've already gotten to the place where you're you're willing I to know. do that where you, you've made the decision that's that's the most horrifying part to me right is that you you have made this decision to get clean like and and this is and that's not the end of the problem right that's not that's not where it stops right exactly no i know i mean like that you know some people say that that's the easy part in comparison to what comes next i don't know if i totally believe that but there's some truth to it but yeah i mean i ended up going to these terrible withdrawals and uh and i i got to that point where i made a decision so even you know after i'd gotten through some of the worst of it i was in this building they were closing down the janitors were cleaning up and uh and there was like a guy there were like guys on both sides of me like walking me towards the elevator and this woman was just like apologizing profusely that this they don't know what went wrong and uh and i ended up i, I looked out the window through like my blurry vision and i could see the hospital across the street and i said don't send me home because I'll, I'll I have no choice but to use if you send me home I have, there's nothing else I can do just put me in that hospital let me stay for a night or two and they said and they basically said like we'll lose our funding if anybody finds out what happened oh my god and and look I feel bad for them the next day they called me and they were they said I can't you know I'm so sorry that this happened and you know I'm not trying to demonize these people because their hearts are probably in the right place but the truth the people's who, who the people whose hearts aren't in the right place are the people who make the legislation that affects these things right and i mean in 2016 62,000 americans died from opioid overdoses right that number was 16,000 in 2010 it was 4,099 so 4,000 overdoses in 99 to six over 60,000 it's like you know 15 it's like 1,500% increase I mean, what, what do you attribute that to? 
or are people only talking about it now? You know, I mean, I mean, clearly the death numbers have gone up, right? But. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're 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 about to like verge into another question, but I mean, why the question of why is a you know it's a really interesting question, and I could sit here and talk to you about it all day. I mean. Is it because heroin's just a great fucking drug? Maybe, you know, and if that's the case, that that's it's an interesting thing. There's aspects of that to ponder in itself, but I think that there is a question that can be asked and, and, and can be worked and an answer can be worked towards, and that's why do people need it now more than ever? Why do why do so many people feel like they need it now more than ever? You know? Right. Um I interviewed Hamilton Morris at one point. He's uh, he's like a he writes about drugs and does documentaries about substance, uh, you know, chemicals and substances more uh, for Vice. And he's something of an expert on this stuff. And you know, he he sort of forecasted that in the Trump era, that these pro all these problems surrounding opiate opiates are just going to get so much worse. And I think. I think he's probably right, and the reasoning, the reasons for that. I mean, look, it's gonna get. It's like all these other problems that we're seeing growing ex, ex, exponentially in this day and age. Whether it's whether it's sexual harassment on in these like habitual uh, type situations or opiate abuse, or I mean, I'm sure if we you know mass shootings, there's a reason why it's happening so much more that it seems almost absurd right right um i don't know if that's i don't know if it's weird pain who knows i mean right yeah i don't know if it's weird to equate those three things but those those are just the things that when i wake up and i i scroll to that little news thing on my phone those are the things i hear about every day more and more and more uh and yeah i think that there's i think it's legitimate to ask why these things seem to be growing exponentially and I can only, I guess I can only speak to opiates uh, and I can only speak on that with some degree of authority but I think that uh, we feel spiritual I think I think a lot of it has to do with technology and I'm not a Luddite I love technology I fucking love technology I and mean, it's I don't I don't have a moment that goes by when I don't have a podcast or a movie or or music or something playing in my ears at all times. If I have my this drug, this is an exception because you're making a podcast right now. But that's that's the only time. Oh yeah, I mean, when you turn off, if you need to turn off the mic to check the sound levels, I'd I'd throw uh, I'd throw Doug Loves Movies on like to just to pass the time. Like I can't be alone with with my brain, which is sad. You know, I mean, I think uh, I, I wasn't bringing that up to. To give a to answer the original question, but to some extent it might answer it. You know, we don't fantasize. We don't have the the relationship with that fantasy uh, function of our brains the way we used to, and I think that must be must have some effect on us. But it, it speaks to a larger thing, which is that we just we are becoming more and more spiritually wanton than than we ever have been. And you know, spirituality is it's uh it's so vague and it could mean so many things to so many people but we we are losing something and the technological aspect to me is i think we are just less connected to a lot of the things we need to be connected to and you know that's obviously ironic we are more connected than ever but we are less connected to other human beings we are less connected to our sense of of um of like lineage and culture we just we our roots 
just die in the ground now and I and I and I think that I don't want to blame that on technology it's more there's we are missing something um I think we the line between reality and and not I don't want to say fantasy but not reality is is blurred um I think that's spe- that speaks more to the ma- the the shooting issue but like it, it's all to me it's all it's all very related we we are thirsty for something and maybe we we don't quite know what it is we're, we're also all the more self-aware and self-focused which is perhaps detrimental i guess you know we, we I, pre- I don't think we're meant to to self-obsess you know this is somewhat off topic but joshua moore is one of my favorite fiction writers and uh he's also been a real a real bud you know like i i have this weird i have this thing uh it it comes from being involved in diy punk rock where you know you feel like you can reach out to your favorite uh you know music producer or singer in a band or whatever and so Joshua Moore is a great example of this where I read his book early on in my writing career and I uh, I was so Damascus is the name of the novel and I was so moved by it that I think he put his email address in the back of the book which is amazing and I wrote him an email and just said look man I, it's been so long since a book moved me this way and inspired me this way and uh, he wrote back like 20 minutes later and, and it was like you made my morning like this me this type of stuff means so much to me it's why i write and uh you know he proceeded to be like a, a real friend and really uh, i and i've met him for maybe five seconds in total you know we've just had this email connection but uh but he's been there for me when i've been through some really tough stuff and in trying to get this book published there'd been a lot of that a lot of rejection and uh when i was really worried about it at one point no something terrible not terrible something that seemed at the time like the end of the world had happened with relation to the book and getting it published and uh and i went to him probably just looking to complain and and you know be upset to somebody and have them hear it and he told me to go volunteer at a soup kitchen and i was so annoyed at when he first said that because like that's not what I, I want. I want somebody to tell me how how hard I have it, and you know, relate. Tell me how hard I've worked and how I don't deserve this. Well, that's why would I want to do that? And it ended up being the best advice anyone had ever had ever given me. It, you know, it was just the, wow. the point is just get out of your your head. Like you don't belong there all the time. You know, it's a bad. It's this is such a fuck. I almost I almost just spouted this cliche and tried to make it sound like my original thought, but. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's it's a common NA or AA thing to say my head is like a bad neighborhood. You don't want to be there at certain times at night. And uh, and that's, you know, that's true. We all have that. You, uh, you know, that's why those podcasts are playing all the time. Um, we're just not meant to be as self-reflective as we are. And then in other ways, we're too self-reflective. We're not self-reflective enough. So I don't know. I don't think I answered your question, but th- that's you, you did. You you did and, and like and more, which is great. You did more justice to the question than it deserved. <laughs> so we talked a lot about drugs, uh, but I feel like we have to cover the whole gamut of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, so sure, I'm going to sw- switch it up a little bit. Uh, but I, I want to talk about the book first, though, before uh-huh. we kind of delve into the other topics. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the creation of the sigil behind the book? <laughs> um, I know I know that like we, we had a conversation about it as a sigil. And can you tell me a little more about your philosophy behind sigils? So, for the, I mean, most people, I mean, I, who knows who's going to be listening to this podcast. Maybe most of the people that download it will know what sigils are, but most people do not know. So let's, let's, uh, let's get it. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, look, I. I can't, I, I just, this is why I write, because I suck at, like, straight line answering questions. I just, I, I have to jump around. But, uh, I'm really into, uh, I'm really into just, like, having a sense of what is sparking the zeitgeist interest at any given time. And, I, and not, and this is the one thing that I'll always sort of give myself, this is the compliment I'll always give myself to that. I have... A fairly keen ability to you know be a couple steps ahead of what is about to capture the zeitgeist's imagination and interest uh one of those things which is i guess it's happening now but in terms of you know it being really mainstream thing there's this thing called chaos magic and it's part of the it's, it's an aspect of the occult and the idea of magic with a k uh you know witchcraft at, in, in you know broader terms right um there is a version of it called chaos magic and i personally heard of it from um there there it was a book series and a documentary series called disinformation um and it, i think the, the the guy who runs it richard metzger now has a website called dangerous minds which is which is excellent everything he does is excellent but they had a book about magic in which Grant Morrison, the comic artist and writer who's a genius, uh, writes about magic sigils and how to make them. You may have heard the word sigil in Game of Thrones. Like, essentially, sigil just means symbol, the right? The first time I heard about sigils was through Grant Morrison, too. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's so weird. I mean, that this is what is magical and, and confusing about the internet ages you know something like that will reach all these people and launch all these people into like this whole philosophy of life and thinking and i doubt he ever expected that when he made that video you know uh but grant morrison talked about uh sigils which are a big aspect of chaos magic it's the one that you'll hear about the most to dig deeper is is, is you'll find there's a lot more to it but the most accessible aspect of it is sigil magic and basically it is making a symbol that embodies an intention and using that symbol to make that intention come to fruition uh really quick uh, just the way to do it because you know i think there there is this sort of punk rock approach to chaos uh, chaos magic the, uh, the ethos of it is punk rock in the sense that there's you sh it's it shouldn't be esoteric you don't hide it you don't it's not Scientology. You don't pay to climb the levels. You just throw. Everyone should be able to know it. So sigil magic is easy. Uh, say you want a really cool dog. You write down, I want. You write down on a piece of paper, I want a really cool dog. You go through. You take out all the consonants that repeat. You cross them off, and then you cross off all of the vowels. And all you have left are. You will always end up with just a couple consonants left. Usually, you know three four or five something like that uh you take those consonants and you use them as a guide to draw a symbol and i am a shitty artist i 
have never been able to draw. I, I my handwriting is so bad that I can't read it. Um, I just, truly, like I cannot take notes with a pad and pen, which has been very hard as a journalist. But uh, but you draw, you just draw something, and for, with the letters, with right? the you letters that the are letters remaining, right? The drawing, right. right? So like I probably said, I want my book to, I want my first novel to be good or you know a success or whatever uh and i had a probably who knows an l and an a and a p whatever or not an a an l a p something like that so i i took those and i made a symbol out of it that symbol uh i all i also had in my head that i wanted my book to have a cover that was made up of a logo that looked something like an old school punk band's logo. And Jen Overstreet helped with the cover, right? She she did the illustration. Right. Well, actually, so the, the original mock-up of it, my girlfriend Sarah Vitali. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, did the original mock-up. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. But I mean, but I originally did it when I made a sigil. So right. I, I wrote that right. thing down. <laughs> I had a yeah. cup. <laughs> so, so sorry, just to be clear. Jen Jen did the final cover. The, yeah, she she right. Jen did the cover. Yeah. But 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 you and but you and Sarah sort of you know you. You would come up with the sigil and then and right. Sarah had done the mock-up. Like, right, wow. right. So okay, I ended cool, up... Cool, cool. I didn't know the history of that. Yeah, yeah. That's how it came about. But, you know, I had the letters left. I had this idea that I wanted a cover with a symbol that... I wanted to treat the book in general like it was a band. Um, and so I wanted it to have its own logo. And I had, like, the DRI symbol, which is just sort of like... A, it's like a... It's like almost like a street crossing sign of a man just like this. Um, so I wanted it to look like that or the black flag symbol or the crass symbol, you know, just like very straight lines, bold, straight lines, but simple. Um, they were trying to really create sort of anti logos with, exactly. their, with their work, right? Like Henry Rollins has talked about that, how the black, how the black flag logo was meant to be, it was meant to be like almost like a corporate logo where exactly. like they put it on posters. It was just everywhere. Right. And then it became something that was larger than they could even control at that point. <laughs> well, that's it. It's, and it's interesting you bring that up because... You know, I, I wanted it to, to look like these punk band lo logos, and it was a symbol, so it, a sigil, so it had an intention. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people believe that, that, the, that this type of magic has been sort of made use of by people in power for years. And you look at any corporate symbol, a lot of people tell you that those are secretly actually sigils. sigils right. um, but anyway, just for the, for, the, for the listeners out there, the way, the way to finish uh, a sigil is you come up with your drawing and you have it on a little piece of paper and you're supposed to fire it, which is basically just associating unbridled energy with that with that symbol so you're no longer attaching that energy and that desire to a specific thing you're attaching it just to that symbol which gives it power it's a lot easier to just think lightning sperm than it is to think i want to make this much money with this book and have this much recognition with this book it's a lot easier to just like have this thing in your head that has this meaning but you're almost supposed to forget what that meaning is. You're so, so the way to fire it is to do something that's going to arouse you um, while you're thinking of nothing but that sigil. So a lot of people... Even sexually, right? I mean, sexually. Like especially sexually. Sexually is like, a, I think, the easiest way for most people. A lot yeah. of people will either like have sex or jerk off while... Uh, uh, while just thinking... I mean, like you... Fought, uh, most people, I think, actually think of the symbol and they even think of it you know, surrounded by flames or like igniting. Um, right, right. But you, you just think of that symbol as you're climaxing or jumping out of a plane or 
you know, th th there's a lot of you can you can get creative here, but it's just yeah, you need to essentially arouse uh, your uh, senses. And, uh, and that's it. Then you're basically supposed to kind of forget about it, just try not to think of it for a while. Um, and that's sort of what I did. In fact, I kind of forgot that it was a sigil. Uh, you know, I, uh, to me, it was just I had told my girlfriend what I, what I wanted it to look like. She made a drawing. She put it on a shirt, which I still have. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, and, uh, and eventually Jen Overstreet sort of perfected it and put it on, on the cover. Um, and yeah. then you, you also had the, you had the USB version of the book too, right? That comes in and it doesn't, isn't the sigil on the, on the back or? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so look, an another aspect of, of this whole thing is I've written about drugs, uh, quite a bit, uh, complex and Williamsburg Greenpoint news and a lot of other places. Um, in the culture of drugs and heroin is interesting in that it has this whole aesthetic and culture attached to it partially in the that the way it's packaged so heroin is is packaged in glassine bags and these glassine bags are used for very little other than heroin which is interesting that they're that they're around you know some people put stamps in them i think it's good for like seedling seeds or or some you know some cooking stuff but it's uh the thing you see used for most is, is heroin. It's like wax paper, essentially. Or seeds in this case, like the USB drives. Like Wunderkammer seeds. There you go. Jones called them, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I, I had written a couple of articles about heroin bags. So anyway, heroin comes in these bags and they're stamped with brands. Like a lot of times it's, it's Gucci, it's Prada, or it's death sentence or it's overdose or it's like yeah, you were telling me about the de quincey jinxie blog right or, or, or a blog online that has like maybe it wasn't her blog but it, but no it oh, is oh, it is okay. this is a crazy yeah. story i mean do you want me to get into that it's a whole i have yeah that's a crazy story absolutely if we hit on something totally. let, all right let, let yeah, me well, fi i'll, 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 I'll finish, finish talking about this that we should talk about I'll, i would love oh, cool. to talk about that actually okay um so anyway i'd written about just the the culture of of uh of heroin branding uh you know i was curious like how these how these are made like who makes the stamps that 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 they use like whether you buy them and and you know so people start to know like oh prod is the best stuff around death sentence is the best code red is is the best you know it's like any other type of branding and it, this is ecstasy does this to some extent mm -hmm. but uh yeah with the pill presses right? exactly yeah. uh but with with heroin it's you know it, it really is a a big part of the culture people chasing this one brand and um i found out about that for the first time well i, I heard about the brands before but it really features prominently in the wire right where they're they're calling out like what like wmd i got that wmd right yeah you know it's weird in um in baltimore specifically so you know, it, it differs regionally as well. Sure. Um, in Baltimore specifically, the way they sell heroin is very strange because it's the East Coast. So you, first of all, heroin is different on the West Coast than the East Coast. On the West Coast, most heroin is uh, black tar. And it's essentially, it just looks like black tar. It looks like black garlic, if anyone's ever used black garlic. It looks like, uh, it's like a just tiny piece of black gum, essentially. And it's, it's not as good usually, and it's uh, harder to handle heroin on the east coast is what's called ecp or east coast powder it's just it's it's beige powder um so and and it comes differently in different places but in baltimore for some reason it comes in pills most of the time it comes in like gel capsules and it's usually just this 
mess of white powder that is a mix of all kinds of drugs. Heroin sucks in Baltimore, and it's dangerous. It's impossible to get drugs safely. I mean, we sh I would love to talk about harm reduction at some point, but like yeah. the harm reduction situation in Baltimore sucks. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, I uh, I wanted to write about the culture of heroin, and uh, we decided as part of the marketing for the book that it would be interesting to sell. Uh, Instar has this tradition of making flash drives for the books because you know they believe in in digi digital publishing in a big way. So they they produce flash drives and they sell them for the eBooks and. Uh, Instead of making, they usually make them shape the flash drives in a cool shape. So instead of doing that, we decided to have regular tiny flash drives and throw them in those glassine bags and get a stamp made, which was the sigil and the cover. So we actually do have those for sale. Uh, I think it's only directly through me that you can get them, but you can find me on social media and buy the collector's edition of Getting Off in the ebook. I, I talked to Jean about this, and when she when she like made the stamp, Jean from Instar, and she, she made the stamp, and it said specifically on the site like these are not to be used to sell drugs, right? Like, right. You cannot put these on. You cannot put the stamp on any drug bags. And so she was like concerned about that as she was doing it because like we're not selling drugs, we're selling something better, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, it came in a. It, it, I think it was in a physical store that she went to and bought the stamp, and that's where. I mean, you know, regardless of that sign, I don't. I don't think it acts as too much of a de deterrent. That's where people get their fucking heroin <laughs> bag stamps. I mean, look, I've gotten. I have gotten heroin bags that have uh, stamps that were obviously meant for like kindergarten teachers like I, i've gotten bags that, that were called pretty good or excellent job <laughs> isn't there isn't there a bag in the in the book there might be a book called something like that i think it's there like, is like good job or great great great, great, great job yeah, yeah great job great yeah. job yeah um <laughs> yeah so it, it's uh it's funny and uh also one of the blurbs on the book is by this writer scott mcclanahan who is one of the best fiction writers alive if you ask me i mean he, he's he's certainly one of the most unique and look it's hard to do something new in this day and age i think that's a lot of i think that's why we're spiritually bankrupt like there's that inability to find like newness in this world right now um sort of anxiety of influence yeah absolutely everything, with everything that's come before us right totally uh scott mcclanahan's somehow is this breath of fresh air in the literary world uh so it meant a lot to me he he blurbed the book, and uh, he had this. Is his entire blurb is incredible, but uh, it ended with "just put it in your veins," which I love. And I was like, <laughs> "There's nothing left over when you're reading this book. Like, <laughs> it is. It is very similar. It's you know, like it's all gone by the end, and there's no more. Like that. That, that was very much my experience when reading it. It, it was. I mean, it. You know. Uh, you know. Part of. Part of our philosophy with derangement of the senses in general is that fiction is a hallucination, right? Sure. Fiction is almost a drug experience where you're you're willingly you're willingly experiencing something other than reality, uh, right? And that that's very much how this book felt in, in a psychedelic way. Like I I really felt pulled into it in, in in a way that was like a drug. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, look, I the way I see it in this day and age, if you're gonna, it's so hard to get someone to sit down and read a book, at, at, you know, in, instead of watch TV or play an amazing video game or something like that and right. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing any of those other things but uh -huh. I think your job as a writer is to really engage people 
in a in a in a way that feels you know that is memorable and is intense and you know that was that was my hope uh should we talk about jinxie really quick yeah yeah let's let's go because it is related let's go back to jinxie because that it's totally related to the stamps we're talking about and sort of heroin culture right yeah so look this is a story that i've been wanting to write forever but it's just not going to happen so i'll i'll give you the exclusive uh (laughs) um so i wrote this story about heroin bag stamps and one of them uh happened right after phillips moore hoffman died and the thing was in the bathroom where where he was found there was a bunch of leftover bags that had a stamp that the cops were kind of unfamiliar with. I mean, you know, another function of these stamps is the cops will, if there's a bag that is hot or like too strong, the cops will look for the person who is selling these bags. And the name of the the brand that they found in his bathroom was the Ace of Hearts, which they hadn't busted any dealers that had it. And that, that, that was that's rare for the NYPD. Usually they have some sense of where something's coming from. Uh, so the only place that they found that had any mention of this bag was this site called Jinxie's Natural Habitat. And it was a blog started by this girl whose name I, I guess I'll actually leave out, but it was a blog. Uh, the, uh, she was an artist and... You know, she saw these bags as people have in the past as a form of art, and uh, she would put them up on the site just, you know, to sort of appreciate from a, from an aesthetic standpoint. Some of the bags are legitimately beautiful. Sure, yeah. Some of them are very uh, intricate and detailed. Um, so at first, she was just putting these up so that people could look at them. And there have been like art exhibits of of heroin bags, and I think for a, there was a long running. New York cable access show where all a guy did was show these bags. It's, it's kind of like blotter, right? Like, like sure, yeah, for, for acid, right? absolutely. Like blotter is all, like, almost always has some kind of artistic value. Right? Sure, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so anyway, she started putting these up, but she was uh, she was a user herself, so she started reviewing the bags. At first, probably just like why someone would review a, a restaurant on Yelp. You know, she was just saying like uh, she she divided the ratings into three categories: rush, legs, count. Rush being you know, obvious legs being uh, how long it lasts and count being how much of the actual substance is in the bag, which doesn't actually matter to people who shoot it, but for people who sniff it, it does. Um, so she started writing these reviews and then she opened the site up to people to write their own reviews and send in their own photos. And after a while, it became this resource for, for users. They would say or the general vicinity where they got it from, not like address but they would say you know patterson newark harlem uh and they would rate it on all of these things and at first it was just like look you can avoid getting bad dope basically but she eventually got uh, acquainted with this yeah. philosophy of harm reduction yeah because there's like a harm reduction site for pills called like pillreports.com oh, it's right? very where, yeah of course where, like, concept. it says yeah hey this is i mean you know this is you know, piperazine or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever, like, and people do pill tests and so, you know, so like there are organizations like Dance Safe, I know, sure. for, for ecstasy, um, that they'll kind of, you know, if, if you're going to be doing it, they'll actually set up booths at raves and stuff so you can get your pills tested there, right? It's, and they, they get, they get, you know, a little bit of blowback legally on it, but it's, it's a really good organization because harm reduction is never very simple. It's a very, com- like, it's a very complex process. I mean, look, I, I, 
in terms of dance safe and those companies those companies are great if you ask me and and the yeah. truth is legally they're they're very limited in what they're allowed to do right. and if you want to get your pills tested you your choices are 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 few and far between and you can only even even with those uh those outfits they can only give you so much information True. they are very restricted uh and and that is a you know uh, when it comes to the concept of harm reduction uh, to me it's when it comes to something like that, it's cut and dry. I don't think there's any reason why people shouldn't be able to know. Right. And anyway, back to Jinxie, the reason why, you know, for her, it eventually became a cause. And that cause was, look, you can go, if you buy something that you haven't used before, you can go on this site and you can find out how strong it is. And if you usually do three bags, you can do two if you find out they're really strong so you don't right. overdose. Right, so yeah. Right, which it sounds, it, it's, I, I guess to somebody who doesn't have experience with it, it can. It doesn't sound that impressive or important, but the truth is, resources like that are incredibly important. And the, and I guarantee you, her site saved lives. Sure, did people go on it to say, "Oh, I want to get that stuff because it's good"? Absolutely, fine. They probably did, but I think it it absolutely prevented overdoses. And so when they found that bag in Philip Seymour Hoffman's bathroom, the cops became very interested in this site. And suddenly everybody wanted to interview Jinxie. And Jinxie was a pseudonym. And in her real life, she was actually a really talented artist who had a career that was that was kind of soaring for a while. And she was getting a lot of notoriety, but people didn't actually connect, you know, the two identities. And she would start to do interviews as Jinxie with like New York magazine and Vice. They wanted to know about her site and you know why she did it, and she used it as a platform to talk about harm reduction. Um Sadly, Jinxie eventually you know, she would eventually move to Oklahoma, and she was murdered uh, in an arson. There was an arson that took place in the house she was living in with her husband, and that crime is currently unsolved. And I have no idea what uh, the cops seem don't know either. And for a while, I was working on a story about it for the New York Observer, and then for Complex. Um, but there was there was a, a change in sort of the police's um, willingness to participate. But uh, yeah, but you know, look, it's really sad that that happened, and she was really talented and uh, and somewhat selfless to really go out there and sort of take the mantle of harm reduction because it's not a popular stance to take, and yeah. it should be. Well, I, even you know, needle exchanges. Things like that are incredibly unpopular. I mean, among people who don't have any experience with this, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like the Pope telling you whether or not to use birth control, right? right. Or a priest, right? right? People with no experience in these issues are trying to control the dialogue about them. That's I feel like that's part of the problem, right? Guys, it's really simple. If needle exchanges making people's access to hypodermic needles illegal does nothing but spread it. It's that that is the only right. thing that law will do. Uh, and frankly, you don't know how many heroin addicts or drug users you've come into contact with, maybe even had intimate relationships with in your life that were just really good at functioning, uh, you know, as a user or, you know, keeping it under wraps. And you might have unknowingly had a loved one who grappled with this stuff every day, whose ability to access clean needles would, you know, a, you know, put the, potentially put them in serious danger, but B, 
you know, make it so that they had some really nasty scars that they had to cover up each morning or, you know, uh, any any number of, uh, of, of safety hazards that come along with, you know, not being able to access clean needles. So it, to me, this question of harm reduction, it speaks to, you know, being able to do research on, on ibogaine and, and ayahuasca and, and its ability. It's just, it is the opposite of, it, this is, this goes back to this question of concepts. We need to remap when it comes to how we approach these things and uh you know we are too uh, we are too stuck in this puritanical way of looking at drugs as good or bad but if we stop doing that and we just say look these are substances they exist and we cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube when it comes to this and it's become a part of people's lives let's figure out best how to coexist with these things. I mean, we don't have a choice to, but to coexist with them. So let's figure out how you know best to live in a world where these things are present. I think once we start doing that, suddenly this scourge of every day, the amount of overdoses grows exponentially. I think that will start to change and I think it'll at least start to slacken. You put that really eloquently. Um... So I, I'm gonna do kind of a lightning round because we're running up on a time limit yeah, here. Yeah. Like we 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 literally could make this like a five hour. Podcast, I know. So yeah. Like, but uh, but let's. Uh, I mean, let's, I love this. If I had my if I had my way, all all uh, social conversation would just happen like this. Just, <laughs> I completely you know, agree. Uh, sorry, that sounds really. It uh, <laughs> sounds really self. Uh, Self-deluded, like no, I, I no, wish all no. social conversation was people interviewing me with a microphone <laughs> and, no, and, no. and keeping it for for uh, for future perusal. Seriously, though, I think that it's it's a great way to kind of you know, I mean that that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast in the first place is because I know so many fucking brilliant people and it's like I want them to have you know platforms. Yeah, talk you about this you, you certainly do know a lot of brilliant. <laughs> I feel very lucky about that. So we're gonna kind of do a quick lightning round because we talked a lot about drugs, but uh, we haven't talked as much about sex and rock and roll. Oh yeah, like our central themes of this book. Sorry guys. No, no. <laughs> but we love talking about drugs too. So, all right. So uh, I love the acoustic cover playlist that you made on Large Hearted Boy. Oh, thanks. Uh, on Large Hearted Boy for each section of the book, and uh, we'll have the link up in the episode description to the uh, to the article. But what was some of what you listened to while you wrote Getting Off? Oh boy, I I mean I wrote. We didn't talk that much about like the actual publication and creation of the book, but yeah. it, it, I have it, questions on that too. I promise. It it happened over. I mean, I wrote this book over a, for such a short, like quick impact book. It it, it it took a while to write and edit. Um, I mean, I listened to what I've been listening to for years, which is different types of punk rock. Uh, you know, punk rock is a word that like, that doesn't mean much sonically anymore but uh yeah I, I mean look my favorite bands are like against me and um this band the paper chase from dallas uh, john congleton is the leader is the lead singer of that band and is a great producer who now has his own solo project um well you say simon's favorite band is he, I, he apparently loves erasure <laughs> right, right. I, uh, I remember Erasure is one of the acoustic covers in that list. Yeah, the, the synth pop for for the sort of cam session. Right? Oh yeah, actually, and I don't think. Around, yeah, what? it doesn't get. It, it was stopped. It was like what it, it was like what you were envisioning or something. It was. I think in early in early drafts, it was it was called it was called out as, as stopped by Erasure. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, when he dances in and the it's game. just generic synth pop now in the novel. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, just like put on like some indie synth pop. It, yeah, something, something like that. That's what it is now. Uh, what's Simon's favorite band? I, 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 I mean, 
Well, I mean, <laughs> AJJ apparently digs Simon, so that's great. But yeah, uh, no, exactly. There, there's a uh, there, there's a, a a blurb from the founder of AJJ yeah, on, on the back cover of the book, right? which which like means so much to me because that's, from that's so awesome. From a lyrical <laughs> standpoint, I, I think he's one of the yeah, most story. literary songwriters <laughs> in in around right now. He's one of the great lyricists alive right now. Honestly, I would say that uh, Simon's favorite band is probably like uh, New Order, Joy Division. That nice. would be my guess. Nice. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have a talent for prose, but do you write songs too? Do you ever write, you ever write song <laughs> lyrics? I I have. I mean, when I was in uh, high school, I was in a, a hardcore band. I sang in a hardcore band. You were in a hardcore band? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. We, we have a what seven. What was the hardcore band? It's called Standing Order. We have Standing we have a seven inch out. It's it's in it's in my oh, apartment somewhere. Um, I so yeah. I mean, I wrote song do you, lyrics do you back play then. Or? I play. I, I I'm I play guitar really poorly. Um. That's you know, what like you need I, for punk rock, right? I, yeah. They say, they say I, you need one, it's like, what? Three chords. Three, and, three chords. Yeah, it's like, there's like, all you need for rock and roll is is two chords. Like, jazz yeah. is three chords and punk is one. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's something like that. I think I, I mean, I used to write song lyrics. I think I've sort of lost my ability to write song lyrics because I'm so, it's it's like, uh, you know, that watching an action like affects the action type of thing. I, I've become so self-aware when it comes to song lyrics. I don't know if I can write them anymore. Yeah, I, I kind of know what you mean. I, I, I feel the same way. when I Whenever I sit down and write a song, I'm always just like, well, the songs that I love, like the songs that I love the most sometimes have really simplistic lyrics. And I feel like right. if I'm sort of mirroring those and, and writing what I love about those, I, I sort of get caught in this weird... <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were talking anxiety of influence, but I feel like that's totally where I am as far as writing song lyrics right now. Yeah, like, I mean, I love that band again. I love Against Me. They're one of my yeah, favorite bands. Yeah. And uh, she recently did a... Noisy interviewed her to, about her albums. And she asked her to rank all of them. And, uh, you know, she... It, very uncharacteristically of a, the front person for a band ranked the first album or one of the first albums reinventing the axel rose as uh, her second favorite album which you know oh, wow. they usually just put their most recent ones as right, their favorites the yeah. <laughs> uh, but that album was written when she was 17 and like you know a punk right, anarchist kid living like, on the street yeah. way before she transitioned and it's a lot of like uh, yeah you know one of the, the this is a song she still plays every night it goes uh, will anybody tell me why God won't speak to me why Jesus never called me to part the fucking seas you know it's this very just wow. fist in the air punk rock oh, yeah. 17 year old song <laughs> but it still like hits people and a lot of those lyrics still hit people and somehow uh, you know have this timelessness and uh, I so it's like that lightning in a bottle thing that I dare not even try to do purposefully I guess you know if I was in a room with some musicians maybe I'd try but <laughs> that's awesome so we weirdly found out that we're both into UK battle rap at the launch party for getting off what other weird genres are you into well let me say though I'm really in a, I'm into hip-hop and rap a lot like I um I've worked as a journalist for the past decade or so and a lot of that time oh, you, were at com you were at complex and yeah and, uh <laughs> yeah and I was at the source writing uh solely about battle rap for that right, right. and uh because you went to Canada and covered yeah <laughs> yeah I, I went to I went to blackout in, blackout, in Toronto yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, look battle rap I can talk about for ages and it's a really interesting <laughs> world but like uh, to me uh there's a tv show called Adam Ruins Everything it's a great show yeah, I really recommend it awesome. um but he recently did an episode about uh, you know what you learned in school that's wrong, and they talk about grammar and grammar Nazis and how grammar Nazis 
are pretty much just wrong. Uh, you the, the truth is, if you love language, you should love the fact that it is in constantly in flux. That is that is what makes language great is that it changes and it grows with the culture and the times and rap is one of the great reflections of that change their ability to take words and 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 uh you know find different meanings for them and 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 reassemble them and attach them to other words you know that is probably a lot more vibrant than it is right now in literature and i say that with a you know kick in the dirt because it's a bummer but uh there's not enough writers doing stuff like that so i think if if you're um you know keith olverman recently said that eminem thing changed his mind about rap it's oh like, my god like, that was i mean this is a total tangent but that was a, that, i mean like that was kind of a weak cipher <laughs> right? like, I, I mean like we like we get it but like and it was important because he was reaching out to an sure. audience that that you know, he, he basically drew a line in the sand where he was just like, okay, well, if, if you're in Trump's camp, then you're not in mine. Which right? is, that, which that is, that was a, that was a valid Hugely, thing. Like, not just valid, but ballsy. I mean, yeah. like, you know, I mean, he can was, afford weak, to do it. It was a weak freestyle for Eminem, though. Was, not, not like, as best. He's really he's interested cool. in acapella freestyle, which is absolutely because he's obsessed with battle rap, like so yeah. many people. If you don't watch battle rap, it's a, a it's, really interesting thing to pay attention oh, to right yeah. now. It's definitely the best lyricism in hip hop. Uh, you know, it's guys doing, uh, sorry, guys and girls. Uh, there's amazing female battle MCs, um, but they're doing these hour-long acapella performances that are often pre-written, but there's some freestyle thrown in, and they are performing this material that they then can never use again. So the work ethic involved in battle rap blows my mind. But and also, it's you know, it's it's like a mix between debate between rap between theater it's it's so many things rolled into one and takes so much talent comedy right it's very comedy like, yeah like marlo and shuffle t like it's not yeah. all serious either yeah yeah check out marlo and shuffle t there are some excellent there uh so marlo in, in the uk there's a lot more of a comedy influence on battle rap so you know marlo and shuffle t are a great uh uk battle team uh roan from from the u from philly is great disaster is yeah, one disaster. of the most talented uh and then there's like the more uh, Smack URL is the more like you know urban battle league, but uh, rappers like Hollow Hollow the Dawn and Tay Rock. I mean, it's it, it is incredibly entertaining. Um, but that's not what you asked me. What you asked me some more weird some stuff more that, weird I'm genres into? that you're into of like, music? Yeah, music league or yeah, whatever. Um, it's I, so, for so long I've just you know I've made it my my business to be on top of what's happening in music. It feels like it's getting harder and harder. Uh, I was recently introduced to Electro Swing. Yeah, Electro Swing. Yeah, I, I've mostly seen that for. That stuff's cool, yeah, it's like, interesting. It's, it's not. It's not an all the time music. Electro yeah. Swing is definitely a sometimes food, kind of like yeah. cookies, right? I really dig XXX Tentacion. He's my new favorite. He's he's. I think he's the most interesting thing to come along. He's the most interesting story in rap music in so long. Um, you know, I've loved folk punk music for a long time, which is against me would fall into that category. Uh, Mischief Brew is one of my favorite bands of all time, and sadly, the singer committed suicide last year. But he, I mean, he was one of the great songwriters of our time. Um, the band World Inferno is a, a World Inferno Friendship Society. They're called. Is this? I can't even put a genre on them. They're like uh, a cross between. I mean, oh man, I don't. I couldn't even try to to explain what type of. Um, 
it's almost like there's like a klezmer type influence and there's a bit of um like it's like almost there's like a I don't know. It's it's check out the world in front. That sounds badass. Yeah. So I mean, the book is incredibly punk rock, right? From Sidlicious to just yeah. a, a look into the underground, right? I right. Mean, do you think that a love of sort of the punk and DIY aesthetic is part of the reason that you wrote the book in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's less punk than I would have liked to put into it. There was, there, I mean, there, in earlier drafts, there was. First of all, this this book at one time was twice its size. Uh, and there's a lot that left that 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 uh, you know I, I look back Some on sides maybe yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but there's definitely in in a long conversation at one point about different black flag singers and how Henry Rollins is the most overrated of the black flag vocalists uh, which I do thoroughly believe um, it, yeah but punk rock is uh, sort of inexplicable inextricable from who I am and. Uh, it's it sounds it sounds silly to a lot of people and i get it uh but i think punk rock has has um evolved into being something more than a genre of music and and more than a philosophy and more than an ethos it's it's uh you know being a grown-up punk i think is an interesting concept that i've tried to write about uh throughout my career it just means you know you uh the idea of it's a way to hold on to, I think, the idealism of youth in a way that can still function into your adult life. Um, Great. Yeah. And wow. yeah. I really like that. Um, so let's let's shift over to sex because we've done drugs and rock and roll. So cool. let's do sex real quick. Do so, let's do sex real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't know it was that kind of podcast. <laughs> uh, so I thought Cam Boys with a Z was an amazing portrait of what the seedier side of the internet can be like. I mean, I've had friends that have done cam work before, um, and I thought the barrier between physical and online sex work was really interesting in Simon and Will's relationship. Uh, in the book, their handles were Sidlicious and To Be Young, right. I think, yeah. And even Repo, who's like totally computer illiterate, eventually goes on Craigslist to find a date with Simon's help. So how do you feel like the internet has changed the way we think about identity and how it relates to sexuality? I mean... The in internet, way, <laughs> yeah, in every way. So it's kind of a stu stupidly phrased question. No, it's not. No, it's it, no, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. I mean, look, the I'll, the first time I saw one of those MacBook laptops that had the little square in the middle of the top, <laughs> my first thought, and probably every, you know ninety percent of heterosexual uh, or you know of 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 people's first thought was I can see genitals on that little thing now. I, I like that you made it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, no, I no, 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 no. But you, you broadened it. Perfectly. You're like, you're like, well, uh, this is me, and then, oh no, this is everyone. No, you're, no, it's a, it's a great point. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the internet is. I I, re I wrote a piece for the New York Observer about camming, um, and and you know my hope was to sort of find a different angle on on on. It wasn't just like, hey, there, here's this new thing. People are looking at each other naked on the internet. Obviously, <laughs> I mean, years ago, before camming was even that big, I remember there was this thing called Camfrog, and it was uh, oh, cam I remember Camfrog. You remember Camfrog? Yeah, no, totally. Like this is like back in like 2006, 2007. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Right, it was just like it wasn't like a it wasn't like a porn site. It was you know, it was a camp site. There was porn, and on there was right? lots of yeah. There I mean, of half of what people, yeah. if you saw a room, it was it was just like a you know like a 
AOL type list of chat rooms, well, but, you, like but it had in the 90s. right, right, like, exactly. Yeah, she was broadcasting her entire life on webcam, like twenty four seven. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah. But like the fuel that ran those things was that was ultimately sex. That's what people signed on hoping for somewhere in their heart, you know. Um, and I think that that's healthy. I, you know, and the approach that I took uh, to writing about camming in that Observer article was that. I think in a lot of ways, uh, the the relationships that a lot of cam users tend to have with their their cam girls or boys act as almost like training grounds for real life social interactions. A lot of these people learn to get over their fear of of talking to people in a sexually charged way by having these interactions on cam. I, I think that's sex. I mean, that was definitely true of our generation with cyber sex, right? Before oh, sure. sexting was a thing, right? But just like talk, like just being a teenager and talking to people online, right? Yeah. That was a huge part, I think, of how our generation's sexuality started to develop. I mean, my I have a story. Uh, it used to be on a podcast called The Soundtrack Series. I'm not sure if it's up anymore. Uh, but when I was a kid, I, uh, I discovered computers really early because I was an awkward kid. I didn't feel like I fit in. And uh, I, yeah, of course. And I, and uh, like probably like you, I found Prodigy CompuServe AOL, mm-hmm. and made a made a a, na- a chat name, and found people who I could talk to and be who you know. I like the idea of trying on different skin even back then, and it's it's what would eventually, you know, push me to write and to act. Uh, but I love the idea that I could like throw on a different handle and be this concept. And at one point, the coolest thing you could be in those rooms was a hacker of some kind, right? right. Uh, and at the same time, I was this kid who showed up every day to school in sweatpants and like a, a bull, a Chicago Bulls sweatshirt with no hood. And uh, at the same time, I was watching a lot of more grown up television at the time. So I was watching your. Uh, you're like Luke Perry's on on 90210 and your Zach Morris's and uh, <laughs> and I wanted to be one of these guys and I wanted to be cool but I didn't know how and I felt like I was cool when I was talking on Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL and uh, and at one point I there was this girl I had a crush on named Jackie and I heard her say to somebody that she liked skater boys in class and I said I gotta be a skater boy. <laughs> I had a skateboard. I was actually into skateboarding, you know, at a very young age. But it was one of those fat vision, vision, uh, yeah, vision, old school decks that 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 only that went straight in the front. And I knew that wasn't the kind. Actually, in fact, I showed up first. I showed up at skate night. They had at the Eaton Town Roller Rink. They had skateboard night on Fridays. So I showed up with my fat old school vision board and and got laughed out of the the roller rink. And I was like, okay, obviously this is, I don't quite understand what this is. So I, I uh, looked it up and I studied it and I found what skateboards looked like now that they were like, you know, they had lips on both sides, a lip and a tail and smaller wheels and that there were clothes that went along with it. And um, at the same time, AOL Hell and all the other yeah. hacking programs oh were coming God. out. <laughs> um, That's a flashback. <laughs> and if you considered yourself a cool hacker on those websites, you had to have those programs. Right. In fact, I even I even learned Visual Basic just so that I could make my own little crappy version of AOL. That is badass. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the thi- you know, AOL was just this program that made it so you could like screw with people on AOL. Kick people off of AOL. Yeah. Like, if, if they were bothering you, you basically like you basically like. DDoS them essentially, or like get get them. You, you Mail, like, bombs. Mail, Mail bombs. Mail bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chat bombs. Um, 
it, and it was all predicated on this idea that Steve Case, the the CEO of AOL, was this evil person <laughs> that was okay with the fact that AOL was filled with pedophiles. So, right. Uh, but what, another thing that AOL, yeah, AOL I really had, <laughs> yeah, I know they really did, right? Uh, the one thing that AOL, another thing AOL had was a credit card generator that. There was some sort of loophole in the credit card system at the time where you could easily just generate a credit card and it would work. And I needed pants that weren't sweatpants. I needed a pair of Airwalk sneakers, and I needed a skateboard that looked like the other kids at skate nights oh, board, so I so I could impress you to be Jackie. A boy. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a. I lived in this uh, this um, suburb in New Jersey where the houses were really far apart, and there was a half built house next door that was like just the foundation and I would go to the mall and I would call up uh, CCS was the skateboarding catalog at the time and I ordered a pair of drawers cargo pants airwalk blue suede shoes and an alien workshop deck with independent trucks and nicotine wheels what the hell and also I ordered like 5288 baud modems and like the fastest in the world. The fastest <laughs> that would ever come out. Uh, five modems and like 10 laser pointers because those were the coolest things in the world back then at a grand total of a, of a ton of money. Not to mention, you know, I'd gotten kicked off AOL a bunch of times for doing all the shit that I did. Uh, so I had to keep making new accounts. And a lot of those I would fish from other people, but I would also just generate new accounts with fake credit card numbers. So... I ordered all that stuff. Lo and behold, a day later, packages are just being dropped off at the curb. And I came into school the next day dressed as like a new person. Uh, <laughs> and and Jackie did take notice and she was into me. And uh, and uh, I just became much cooler than I... And, uh, so kids, I hope you learned an important lesson today on the podcast, which is that using which is the credit card fraud makes you cool <laughs> it does make you cool but i also got so cool that i started you know smoking pot and all the stuff that people do um and Amer- somebody america online eventually got wise to what i was doing and i ended up spending a summer in a behavioral modification camp oh my God. Uh, in lieu of Shit, pay that's yeah awful. I, I, I paid the price, so... Okay. Yeah, you can be cool, uh, but you definitely are going to end up in a boot camp for that <laughs> if, if, if you desire it so much. You just got to be willing... You got to know what... You got to understand what you're willing to sacrifice for that coolness. I have like 15 other questions, but I think we're already in an hour 45 yeah. here, so... Wow. Uh, we're, we're gonna, yeah, we're going we're gonna to cut it short uh, or shorter than it would be. Yeah. Uh, but any, any last thoughts before, uh, before we go? Uh, no, I mean, you know, thanks so much for listening, for having me ask me these questions. Um, look, I, uh, I guess I would just say that it's, if, if you want to be a writer, you should write. Um, it's, it's worth it. And it's, you're not going to make a ton of money, but you, you can do it and survive no matter where you live. Uh, and people will read it's, and it might not be like, the amount of people that would have read it if it was 10 years ago and it you might not yeah it it'll work out I, that i really think that if it's what you really want the best advice a writing teacher ever gave me is that you just got to stick around if you if you love it enough you'll stick around and if you stick around enough it'll pay off um 
That's so great. stick around. Yeah. Excellent. John, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. John Reese, everybody. Again, you can buy Getting Off at instarbooks.com. And, uh, and John's going to be reading at the Franklin Park Reading Series on December 11th. So go check him out there. Thanks again.